Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Today's Forest Spotlight is going to be a little bit different format because I don't really quite know how to approach some of these topics without maybe getting into the weeds a little bit. I'm going to be sharing this entire episode really in the form of questions because I think that's a better way of approaching these because I know if I started just talking straight on, I have my own opinions about what I think probably is going to need to be done or happen, but I know that I'm not the only person who has a perspective or an opinion, obviously, and I know that For us to move forward, we have to really be inclusive and to be crowdsourcing all of the information that we have and the data and to navigate both the emotional side of what we do and the anecdotal side of what we do and the data side to come up with something that can really move nature education forward and into being a solid part of our everyday lives through public education and through our universities and so forth. And I'm just curious about how these are going to happen. Now, some of the things that I'm going to ask questions about are things that probably there are people that actually know how some of these things happened. And this is a great opportunity. If you're listening and you know how something happened, please contact me. Let me know. And I would be really interested in maybe having you on an episode where we could just talk about that. Because to me, this whole experience of being in a nature education field my entire life, there are just some ways that this this entire field has been set up that is incredibly frustrating because it has just created, it was created the, the way it has been. And I don't really know why. So hopefully we can get to some of these answers. And that being said, just know that you probably will have your own questions at the end of this and we can keep going with this because these are things that I think we're going to have to answer in order to really move forward. Now, I guess I'll just dive in. So one of the questions I have had is this, who was in the room when environmental education was born? This was, I think, happened, I haven't researched this entirely, but at some point in the 60s, I believe, there were a group of different educators and naturalists who had been experimenting with taking students for two days, three days, five days into the forest and having kind of Joseph Cornell type sharing nature with children experiences and also doing some science things like pond, animal and wildlife observation and other elements of nature-based educational learning. And I'm curious about who was in the room when this became something that went, I want to say mainstream, although I don't even know technically if that's 100% correct. But at some point, there were schools that did not go and do anything out in nature. And then all of a sudden, we had fourth grades or fifth grades or sixth grades where they said, all right, when you're in sixth grade, you're going to go with your class, the entire school, that sixth grade, and you're going to go to this environmental ed center. And there's going to be educators and naturalists there that are going to take you through 
a bunch of cool things. And it's like summer camp for a week in the woods during the school year. And I'm not sure if every school has this or every state has this. I know like Minnesota does. I know Michigan does. I know Pennsylvania, New York. I know that there are many states that have this process involved where they said, hey, this is valuable. We're going to let that happen. So I'm curious who signed off on those on that decision to set up those programs and the centers and the number of staff and sort out the logistics of that whole experience. Another question is, how did they come up with the rate of pay for those educators? In other words, how did they decide what the value of a environmental educator who went through four years of college would get uh, as far as a rate of pay you know, goes? And how did they decide what the directors made and what the actual budget was for the center? I know for myself, when I worked in environmental education, most of the time we were actually responsible for cleaning the center after a big group has gone through. And even during the week, we would actually have to go in and vacuum the rug after our activities and pick up everything and empty trash and do all that. So we were doing janitorial things as well as some trail maintenance, as well as all the education and games and evening activities and so forth. Sometimes we were even responsible for chainsawing firewood and, you know, getting that all prepped for those programs. And I don't mind even doing that, but what's interesting is that I'm curious to know who decided that value was $150 a week for educators or $200, whatever it was being not set at the rate of pay that a teacher would make. So curious. Another question is, are the people who set that up, were they aware or are they aware that they would effectively be undermining environmental education for decades and that the low pay and status would hamstring this entire field from being really taken seriously by the Department of Education in the public school system? That's a big statement, but I'm going to throw it out there because I'm going to keep it real. Yeah. One other question. Why didn't they just set the pay scale the same as teachers with benefits? Why did the environmental education professors in universities and colleges all across the U.S. agree to teach college students for four years, give them a degree in environmental education, and be okay with their starting pay being at or below poverty level? I'm, I cannot maybe guess that, hey, they're tenured, they're making their professor money, good luck, and more, hope you figure it out. But why, why would they not want to champion getting the same rate as a teacher or a comparable rate, but something that you could actually make a living on? That's like historical. That's an historical piece of this questioning. And yeah, I, I wish I had answers to this. I wish I could actually dive into this, but it is what it is. Let's go to my next set of questions. And this is a pretty significant area that I'm going to say is facing environmental education right now, especially with forest education, really being shown to have an incredible model for preschool and kindergarten and being able to deliver outcomes both on a like occupational therapy and development model metric as well as inquiry-based learning and being able to get them to be curious and to be self-starting and to foster curiosity and so forth. All of these things are really about to, I think, have a moment where students are able to 
come in and be in those programs and actually really feel joy, drop a lot of anxiousness, have like really positive educational experiences in a way that contrasts sometimes from what teachers' experiences are in the public system as it currently exists without the nature components. I believe this field is about to collide with public education, and that's what this line of questioning is really all about. Let's just dive in. So how can we as forest educators correct the valuation from the environmental education process and be able to, moving forward, create effective nature programs for public schools and classrooms? Like, how do we overcome that that barrier? that's been there for a long time? And how should our work be evaluated and valued if not at the exact same level as our teachers and administrators pay? So big question, how should our work be evaluated and valued if not at the same level as teachers and administrators? What level of training would we need to achieve to make these programs a success over several decades for lead instructors and educators doing forest education in modern schools. So yeah, what level of training will we need? And would it be different from the current forest education training that we see in Europe or in the UK or in Canada or here in the US? What changes do we need to make? Or is there another level or would we need additional classes and so forth? And this kind of goes back a little bit historically so you'll see what I mean when I ask this. So how did the forest education movement in the UK and Europe come together and agree on the principles of what forest school is and the definitions of that and standardize their trainings to adhere to a singular program model if they do? I don't know if that they all do, but I'm just curious about this. So in other words, forest education has been around in the Europe and in the UK for a lot longer than the U.S., and as they developed, I'm curious as to how did they develop and how quickly did they go into a certification model and who was involved in making those decisions? Was that something that was like by consensus by all the people that had been educating students for a certain number of years? Was it made by program directors? Was it made by the government stepping in and being part of some decision making? I'm really curious. And I know that there are answers to those because that wasn't that long ago that this all began to happen. Basically, was this organic or was it really something that was a thought out process that was really led by a team of people? And who were those people? And were they provided funding to develop this process? Or was it something they all just had to self-fund what we're all doing right now? Another question is, what is the average rate of pay for educators in the UK system and throughout Europe? Is it comparable to educators in the public schools there in terms of both pay and benefits? I'm pretty sure that it isn't because I have talked to a number of forest educators out there who left the public schooling career and became forest school educators. And I know they they were really worried about the fact that they were taking a cut in pay and that they didn't have like job security and a lot of other issues. I'm pretty sure it is lower but I'm curious as to what that rate of pay is in terms of the how comparable it is and whether how they feel about that. And I guess I would ask this question, how can we test the best forest school models for integration into our pre-K and all grade levels in our public schools? And what are the metrics that we need to develop that will be accepted by the Department of Education 
in each state or at the federal level here in the United States. So I'm really curious to think both, how do we pilot program a number of these models? Do we use, obviously, the standard kind of model from Europe and UK for the preschool and kindergarten, forest kindergarten level type of approach? And then how is that different if there is a standard training for the elementary, middle school, and high school level? As far as I know, it doesn't seem like there's a huge demand for those older student trainings and that there's an accepted, this is the consensus of what it looks like in the same way that it is for preschool and kindergarten. So I'm, I'm curious about how could we test those models so that we could then find something that really works for most schools and then begin that process of helping them, helping public schools get the benefits of these forest education experiences throughout their school and get it approved by the Department of Education. Yeah, that's a big question in my mind that we are going to have to answer because going into these schools, we are going to need to submit our curriculum, submit how it meets the helps and supports the standards that they're working from, the syllabus, and so forth. It's going to be it's going to be a, a a task, let's put it that way. So another question regarding all of this process of getting into public schools and and how that might look is along these lines. Like how many forest educators would we need to pull off a solid program in a larger urban or suburban school and district? What kinds of curriculum and educational environments and materials would we need to achieve success? So in other words, where are all the materials going to come from if we started working with thousands of students as opposed to 20? And how many staff would we need to be able to really pull this off? And what kind of environments would we need to begin to build into these programs and the schools and the school playgrounds and settings and everything else to achieve the success that we know our programs can deliver when we have all the right ingredients? So another question along the same exact lines is, what other forest educator team members would we need to help get everyone in these schools on the same page and achieve buy-in from enough teachers and administrators to allow our programs to flourish? Because we know that getting resistance, there's always resistance in any period of change. So in other words, like in a family system, if the mother comes in and goes, hey, I think we should all be vegetarian for three nights a week because I think that's better to be plant-based, there's going to be resistance. If, if everyone decides at your work that you're going to make a major change and everyone's going to have to go out and walk a mile at lunchtime, that's going to get pushback because some people don't want to do that. And they have like people get stuck in what it really works for them. And my big question is, how do we really help achieve that buy-in, not just at the like preschool and kindergarten level, but as we go further out into those grades. Because if we don't really know and anticipate that type of pushback, we are going to be in for a big surprise, I think. Right now, when someone says, hey, I'm doing a forest school, and they get families to drop off 12 children for them, or eight children, or 17, or whatever it is, They hire the staff and then they just do what they need to do. And there's really no pushback. You might get a little pushback because somebody came home dirty or something. I don't know. And parents might push back a little bit. And I'm sure there is some pushback, but there isn't necessarily pushback from your teachers. Like imagine if you were running a program and you went, all right, they dropped off the students. And then a third of your educators 
who are out there, you know, working with those students turned around and went, yeah, we don't want to be outside today. We want to be inside. We think this is a better way to do, to teach fire making or loose parts games or activities. And so they're just not into it. And they're like anchors that we're having to drag along. That's what I'm talking about. Like most forest educators don't have anything like that. You might have one staff member that might be a little bit of a fifth wheel or maybe not quite 100% on board all the time. That's completely different than someone actively resisting what you're doing. Big question. I'm not sure what the answer is, but these are questions that we're going to have to find the answers to if we're going to actually integrate into public schooling. And who is it that the school and teachers and educators and administrators will actually listen to? And where will they get their, I don't want to say power, power is not, it's a weird word, but how do they, how would they be able to establish their authority coming in and being able to navigate that world and not just come in authoritatively and say, this is what it is now, deal with it, but come in and work together and figure it out. Like, it's tricky. It's definitely complicated. All right. So let's see. There's another one. What should a time frame be for a true trial run? Meaning we have a public school and they're into it. The, they say, hey, let's do a pre-K kindergarten and a first or second, third grade model. Let's do this. We want to make this happen. And they're up for buy-in. For the most part, they've solved some of the problems, but what should that be? Should it be three years that we try it and then we measure and see how we all think it is? Is it five years? Is it nine years? Like how much of a run should we give before we actually make a call on is it working or not? And how do we assess it throughout the process so that we can tweak it to get better and better results as we go forward? so that ultimately it becomes something that's so successful that it just gets built in. And another question, so what changes would we need to make at the university or college level to prepare today's educational students for teaching in a forest education model public school? This might be something that's down the road because we would first have to come up with what are the models and then what are the roles and everything else. So it might happen organically and naturally, but I'm curious as to how we might get professors and educators at the college level on board and on the bus. And right now I know most of them, they're really not focused on adding that nature component or outdoor classroom component or whatever. Big question there. Another question, what kind of research and development team would we need to have to collect data on all of the existing programs, both private and public, and study different promising models of nature education, nature-based learning? Yeah. Is any organization or group of educators working at any of these levels currently? And how could we all coordinate to better work together? And where will the funding come from to achieve some of these goals? Who are the visionaries who could help us pull this together and pull it off? All of this, I could probably bear repeating each of these things three or four times because this is really important. These are ingredients that if we don't have some of these questions answered and held by a team of really brilliant, wonderful people who get what forest education is and they get the power of it and they also understand what we're up against. We are probably going to see a lot of crashing and burning, a lot of things that will actually set forest education back because we're not achieving that. So I'm really asking these not, I'm not 
asking these questions in an accusatory way to anyone or expecting anyone out there to know what the answers are because I, I don't know who's even asking them yet. But I know that there are people who want to answer them and are, are working hard to develop them. This is my invitation to anyone who has any information or desire to work at these levels to effectively maybe get together and see if we could actually make some real change and headway so that we will have options as forest educators to stay with the private method, private model, or maybe step into a public model and achieve a better level of pay or compensation and benefits so that we can make raise our families and just have some of that stress taken off our shoulders. To me, that's really a worthwhile goal with all this. So another question is, is it unrealistic to imagine that current forest school leaders and educators who are currently focused on their own programs and funding and staff training and development, are they going to be the most effective harbingers of public educational change? So in other words, is it unrealistic to think, oh, the people that are currently running all these private models are going to also come up with this whole other integrated public school model, which is way more complicated with a lot of moving parts and a lot of factors. Is it unrealistic for us to expect that is going to be the horse we're going to ride out on? Really important question. And what are the dangers or concerns moving forward if we allow forest educators to create programs without support and input on curriculum, valuation of that work, funding and the costs, or realistic timeframes for success and development? What are the dangers in that? that? That's my question for that. One of the dangers I can think of right now is that most of the time, people that start integrating with those public school models probably are not charging enough to be able to really deliver and put the attention that they need to really create awesome programs. And therefore, those public schools might be getting an idea that, oh, this isn't going to cost us that much to really integrate this. And they're not going to see it as an experiment. They're going to see it more as, oh, for pennies on the dollar, we can actually throw these concepts in, pull some of it off and get the benefits without having to really make any substantial changes or work us into, the, into that equation as far as how they serve the, their students. Yeah, these are big issues that I can think of. And I'm how do we ask these questions in a way that is respectful and also realistic and we're going to need a lot of like closed door rooms where we hash out some of this stuff and get into it and figure out what these are and maybe they're not closed door maybe they're really transparent rooms in which these conversations are had so that everybody can see what everyone's working on and what concerns we have and what what solutions we can present to be able to really pull this together like ultimately for me my my goal would be to see nature education available to every single student in in our country and around the world, obviously, but at least within our country here in the United States or, or Canada or wherever. And how do we do that in a way that it is then equitable? In other words, it's not going to cost those parents extra to do that. And, and it really makes it inclusive and Obviously, that's another question. How do we take our forest school model and, and really assess it for diversity and inclusion and all of that perspective and then come up with any changes we might want to make to then be able to insert that into our current public school systems so that we 
can avoid having to make changes at that level down the road. Like we can just build it right in. So to me, that's a really important piece moving forward. Yeah, this, I, I'm sadly, I'm going to say, I really don't want to go ad-libbing off of this right now because I, I feel like I could just, just start running my train of thought forward and maybe get out there and then instead of you, all of you forest educators that are listening to this, just thinking about my questions, you could then be just hearing my concerns and then hearing me ramble about them and then be more pushing back against that. And I don't want this episode to be about that. I'm hoping that we can look at these questions and think it through. If there's one episode of this Forest Educator podcast that you might want to go back and actually re-listen to what I just asked, some of those questions, and maybe hit pause after I ask a question and think about it or kick it around with your staff or something, I would love that. I, I didn't really number all of these, and I actually could probably come up with 20 more questions that go much deeper into our program models and so forth else, and maybe I'll do that. But right now, this is, to me, one of the things that we're going to have to begin answering for people who want to work at this level. And again, if you're someone that just likes showing up, you've got your thermos full of uh, wintergreen tea and you're ready to hang out with those kids and build a big shelter or play in puddles or watch woolly bears crawl along a log or whatever you want to do, that's 100% awesome. Feel free to skip over this and go, hey, there's a lot of interesting questions and yeah, someday I might be into it down the road. But Right now I got my hands full and I really just need solutions on coming up with five new craft activities for the next three weeks or something. So I totally respect that and can appreciate that. But these have been eating away at me since the moment I started this podcast and for the last 30 years, especially when I think of how many people are, have been working in environmental education for such low pay and why it was why the system was set up that way and what what took the teeth out of it or the value out of it based on that so this is where we're at good questions hopefully we'll find some answers i'm going to report back on answers that i find so in a future episode hopefully not too long we will reconvene and i'll actually discuss what was shared and maybe i'll have another list and Maybe it'll be a little bit more coordinated. Please reach out to me, foresteducator.com. You can go there. You can send me an email. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. Happy to chat with any of you and hear what you have to say. So anyway, until then, enjoy these questions. Hopefully they don't burn a hole in your head the way they have for me. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they're burning there for a reason. Anyway, I will see you next week with another episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator, nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.